What's up guys and welcome back to the show. Before we get started, I'd just like to express my thanks and gratitude to the sponsors which support this podcast. I'm very selective with regards to the brands I work with and will only ever work with those which I would use myself. River and CoinKite are two such stellar Bitcoin only brands. If you already know about how they can help you to grow and secure your Bitcoin wealth respectively, skip ahead 70 seconds. If not, keep listening. CoinKite, first and foremost, makes products that help you take secure self-custody of your Bitcoin. Their flagship product, the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, has been a favorite of many Bitcoiners for many years. Reservations are also now open for the Cold Card Q1, which takes all the awesome features of the MK4 and adds a full QWERTY keyboard, QR code scanner, large LCD screen, battery power, and a ton more. If you've been waiting to get your Bitcoin off exchanges or are looking to migrate to a multi-sig solution, CoinKite has you covered. Beyond that, there's a ton of other goodies available at their store for using, gifting, and generally adorning your home or office with more awesome Bitcoin stuff. My personal favorite being the Block Clock series. Check it all out at CoinKite.com. River is the place to build your Bitcoin wealth in the U.S., you can take the emotion out of Bitcoin accumulation by setting up a regular dollar cost average purchase with zero fees. You can buy lump sums and you can even buy your own mining rigs and have them take care of all the hassles as you watch the sat stream in. For the developers and entrepreneurs out there, be sure to check out Rivers Lightning service, which allows for lightning payments to be built into applications without having to run any lightning infrastructure yourself. River has a brilliant, principled and committed team which has truly built a best-in-class solution for growing and managing your Bitcoin wealth. Learn more about them at river.com today. Let's do it. Jason, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time today. I'm uh, really looking forward to, this, to the discussion. So um, how about you uh, get us started with a little bit of intro about yourself and your background, what you're up to, and we'll, we'll take it from there. Sure. So I'm Jason Rick. Uh, owner-operator of Rick Ranches, grass-fed and grass-finished beef, and also registered Black Angus cattle. Um, we're one of the founding members of the Beef Initiative. Slim, myself, J.P. Valdez, and uh, Cole Bolton started that uh, about a year and a half ago now. Um, that's probably what's launched us into kind of celebrity mode as far as in the beef cattle and regenerative ag, as well as um, sovereign food, sovereign money space. So that's been fantastic. I was born and raised in Hotchkiss, Colorado, which is about 15 miles from where we currently live, where our, our ranch is now. Did um, four years in the Marine Corps, came back and went to work in the coal mines, worked underground in the coal mines for 15 years. Wow. And then I've been ranching full time for about eight years, but I've been managing the property that we're on, my mother-in-law's ranch for 15 years. And so, um, yeah, when we shut the coal mine down, my wife and I decided kind of together, more or less me saying, you know, I'd like to ranch full time. And we've been selling direct to consumer for pretty much all um, eight of those years that I've been ranching full time. Wow. Well, it's hard to pick a place to start with that kind of a background. Um, maybe just to fill out the background. I know Bitcoin, like when did Bitcoin enter the picture for you and how, how has that influenced things, if at all? Right. So one of my wife's cousins, her husband works in the Bay Area financial and he actually orange pilled me 2017. It's when he first told me, it's like, do you know anything about Bitcoin? I'm doing a deep dive in it. Uh, one of the companies we work with is looking at investing in it and in some of its infrastructure. 
And so at that time, I kind of, I, I kind of just pass it off as, you know, Harry Potter, Harry Potter money, you know, magic money. Um, but then that started me down the rabbit hole. And so I started reading and researching and the interesting thing and, and similarity between cattle ranching and Bitcoin is um, we're very independent. We're all about self-sovereignty. And we have these very similar goals and ideals. And so that was the thing that really um, made me take a deeper dive and a deeper look into it. And then, and that was about, so it was about 2019 when I bought my first exposure to Bitcoin, which was through my 401k or my IRA. And I bought some Grayscale uh, stock. And at that time it was going berserk. And so I bought a little more, bought a little more. And then I thought, you know what? I need to take it to the next step and buy some and hold it myself. And so I bought a little bit. And at that time is when I started accepting Bitcoin for beef, which for me has been the, the best way for me to acquire more Bitcoin because not only does it cater to a certain kind of clientele, which we support each other with our goals and ideals, but it also allows me to have that peer-to-peer -peer transaction you know, so you're completely independent of the system. And so we've been accepting Bitcoin for beef since 2019, you know, and, and I don't know, I would say probably 10% of my customers pay in Bitcoin. Wow. It's interesting that a lot of the hardcore Bitcoiners will still pay in fiat uh, in lieu of transacting in Bitcoin. Um, but more and more of them are transacting in Bitcoin. And that's partly because I'm ribbing them and just completely give them a hard time about like you, you preach this circular economy and adopt adoption and hyper Bitcoinization. It's time to put your money where your mouth is. And that's really how we ran our business. You know, our goal is to build soil health and soil fertility. And we just happen to use cattle as a land tool to help us reach those goals. And so much like Bitcoin, as far as sovereign independence, completely, um, you know, unalienable, unregulable. It's one of those things where it's just, it's better than than what everything else that I see around. And, I, and I'm really banking on it being our lifeboat with what we're looking at as far as the financial crisis. Yeah. Um, what is the reason that some of the Bitcoiners that continue to pay in fiat give you for not using Bitcoin? Because they don't want to spend any Bitcoin, you know, and, and I but tell is them that, that because of tax considerations or they don't, you know, because the whole, if you have excess fiat, that could just as easily be Bitcoin. So the whole like, well, I don't want it to affect my stack doesn't make that much sense. Right. Because you just, you're up, it's the same, right. You either that fiat is beef or it's Bitcoin, you know, so is it a tax consideration oftentimes? No, and, and that's the, the the interesting thing with a peer-to-peer -peer transaction is it's um there doesn't have tax implications. And people using strike, you know what I mean? And and I wouldn't have tax implications unless I rolled it over into fiat. And so one of those things is I just continue to stack and put it in cold storage, you know, as my rainy day fund. And then things that I know that I enjoy that I can buy with um Bitcoin that I choose to to spend and, and buy in Bitcoin whenever the opportunity arises. So I don't think it's that. I think, honestly, I think there's just a lot of LARPing. 
You know, that, that's one thing that I found because for ranchers or even just rural, rural folks, we, we put our money where our mouth is. We prove through actions who we actually are and what we actually stand for. And what I found is there aren't a lot, but there's more than I ever realized people who just talk the talk and don't walk the walk in the Bitcoin space. And I've never been known to handy coat my conversation. And so oftentimes I'll just call them out. I'm like, well, let's, let's talk about it. Why are you so strong into Bitcoin? And why do you share all of this stuff on social media? When the reality is, it's just gives you something to talk about. Because if you can't transact with me in Bitcoin, someone who is a Bitcoin maximalist, or I mean, whatever, you know, the title is, because um, that's really who I am. And that's what mm -hmm. I believe in. The only way that you're going to get a mass adoption is if you expose as many people to it as you can. You know, you convince your retailers and your coffee shops and all of those things like here are the benefits of it. Even if it's only 5% of sales, it gives you an opportunity to attract more customers who would rather transact in Bitcoin than in fiat. So yeah, I absolutely relish the opportunity to spend Bitcoin. And that that's a relatively new phenomenon for me because I was ever since I, you know, became interested in it in I think 2014 or 15, like, you know, HODL was the, was what you do. And there wasn't as many opportunities to spend it, you know, back then and all that stuff. But um, on my, I think, second trip to El Salvador, uh, there was many opportunities to spend it. And I just, I got addicted to spending Bitcoin because it, it, it just, I know this sounds super weird to non-Bitcoiners, but it, it changed how I felt about the transaction. You know, like I felt that I was giving something away that I cherished. And as a result, you know, I, I was uh, respecting or dignifying or valuing what I was getting in return that much more because it was so like the, the value of what I was giving away was so much more like pronounced or salient or I was conscious of it. And it just, it, it establishes a different type of relation with, the people that you're spending it with oftentimes, you know, you know, not all the times you might spend it at McDonald's too, because it has that capacity, but it's just, it's a different sort of transaction. And um, so I, anytime I have the opportunity to do it, I absolutely take it. Well, and that's why we do a lot of bartering because spending Bitcoin or transacting in Bitcoin is very similar to bartering, right? Because fiat is simply exchanging time for money. Right. That's all it is. It is the value of exchanging time for money, um, whereas Bitcoin can be more like you physically mined gold, but it's in the form of a digital currency that you hold yourself. Right. And so it has a lot more leverage in your mind than just, you know, these fake fiat dollars that we transact back and forth. And so that gives you the opportunity to have that more bartering type feeling about it. Exactly what you were saying. I mean, you feel good doing it because you're sharing this power and this um, independence and this sovereignty with another human being in a way that you couldn't do previously unless you were in the village model where maybe the blacksmith was transacting, trading blacksmith work for the cheese maker for cheese. Or, or for the, you know, the, the horseshoer for shotting his horses or whatever that happens to be. It's much similar to that than it is just transacting. And now, of course, with the, the credit card 
space in the in the debt space people just get used to swiping a card and then worrying about it later whereas in bitcoin once you transact it's a done deal there is no taking it back um so you really have to know that whatever it is that you want to buy is worth the transaction mm -hmm. i also think there's just a an element of when i when i think of fiat money and i do it all the time with paper money i look at it and i'm just like stunned at how stupid and you know corrupt and ridiculous this whole thing is like you have the same piece of paper and if it has a hundred on it or if it has a five on it you, you it allows you to do vastly different things like what, what that's just it's so nonsensical and so like you you're giving this person this thing that you don't respect that you don't think is logical or rational that you think is illegitimate in some capacity that is literally transferring a liability to them insofar as that the value will continue to be uh you know siphoned away from from that you know unit that you've given them and so all that taken together it's just like it that that's not a good feeling that you're you're using something like that to get something presumably a value from someone but when you flip it on its head and the unit that you're using is rational and logical to you and does seem legitimate it does seem fair and truthful and all those other things we know bitcoin to be that of course that constitute that's going to contribute to constituting a much better sentiment in the transaction that's taking place right and so Absolutely. that's been my experience and i can't you know i can't wait for the parallel economy to continue to grow and grow and grow and hopefully hyper hyper bitcoinization one day you know because um people are i guess it's hard to hard to appreciate and hard to uh like make predictions about it but i think that alone like just the the how a transaction makes you feel. I mean, transactions are life basically, right? I mean, that's that's what you do when you go out in the world uh, and you transact and you trade with people. And the nature of how that transaction makes you feel as a result is, is probably fairly consequential. And I don't, I think we're kind of, uh, we're probably not appreciating that as much as we will in hindsight one day looking back, you know? Absolutely. Um, what, you know, th this, one of the questions I often ask people is kind of, what underlying philosophical or principles or values were stewing beneath the surface to allow for the various connecting of dots that ultimately led to Bitcoin? You said you spent uh, four years in the Marine Corps and then you went on to coal mining. I'd love to dig into a couple elements of both, but just like was, was, were you critical of broadly speaking, the system before? Did you think, you know, freedom was in short supply? Were these sorts of things, you know, were you thinking about them back then? Or was there a time when your thinking kind of shifted and that's what ultimately allowed you to be kind of open to an idea like Bitcoin or seeing the value in something like Bitcoin? Well, and I mean, my mom can attest to this. From the time that I could crawl, if someone told me that I couldn't do something, you know, like, oh, as a physical limitation or whatever, you, if you can't do that, they would always be challenge accepted. So when I heard about this freedom FU money, it was like, that's a no brainer. That's just another way to stick it to the man, as well as have this real, very logical um, financial security that the Fed just absolutely cannot guarantee. I mean, from the time that we went off the gold standard, we have been doing nothing but hyperinflate the value of our livelihoods away. I mean, I look at like my dad and his generation, you know, freshly retired and them being so 
focused on the money that's in the retirement being there and having value for the rest of their life. And that scares me to death. So Bitcoin is an opportunity to have essentially a parallel system to be able to not only hold as wealth as it continues to increase in value, but also a way of transactional wealth that's that you can easily transact across countries, continents, you know, nearly instantly. Whereas if it was all in gold and you had to shave off a little sliver to buy a chicken for dinner, um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So you have all the benefits of precious metals without all of the, the disadvantages of precious metals. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I hold plenty of precious metal also just in case. Um, but that's, that was probably the biggest thing. And then, of course, being able to, to live through a whole cycle of Bitcoin, you know, with its having and that the crazy volatility helped to, to really solidify me in just being comfortable being along for the ride and how important it is for me to support the people that want to transact with Bitcoin with me and my business. And, you know, I mean, I I, ex, I was paid it with $65,000 Bitcoin for beef and I was paid with, you know, $14,000 Bitcoin for beef. And so people on the outside looking in are like, well, that's crazy because you essentially gave beef away at a third of what it's actually worth in versus dollar Um valuation at that time or the flip side of that is you know i sold it for twice what it was now that bitcoin is tickling thirty thousand again mm -hmm. whereas for me a satoshi is a satoshi one is one no matter what the dollar valuation is it's just a lot of people on the outside looking in are just chasing what the dollar valuation is regardless of the underlying technology and the underlying importance of what Bitcoin is doing for us. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, couldn't agree more. What, uh, what was the Marine Corps like? You, four years, you said you did four years there. I mean, what, what was that experience like for you and how, if at all, did it kind of affect things afterwards? Well, so the reason I joined the Marine Corps was because I wanted to go to college. And they offered me the most money for GI Bill and the most money for the Marine Corps College Fund because I was not going to pay student loans no matter what. And so I joined the Marine Corps mainly for that. And of course, my idea was if I was going to join the military, I might as well join the badass branch anyways. Um, because, you know, the title of Marine is unlike any other service every other service was i was in the army or i was in the air force or i was in the navy whereas you know the marines are like i, I am a marine i was a for i am a former marine so that was it was great honestly i mean there were a lot of young people that weren't prepared for the the mental stress of boot camp and some of the schoolings that we did but for me i had family members that were military and I had a pretty good idea what I was going to be expecting. So I was mentally prepared for it. Plus, I mean, I was a high school wrestler, you know, and so as far as pushing yourself physically and mentally past the point of where you think you could go, I was used to it already. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up getting an MOS 
um, in aviation. So I was an aviation ground support equipment electrician, which means we we worked on all of the equipment that you use on an airfield to support helicopters and fixed wing aircraft. So generators, air conditioners, um, ventilation fans. And then when I picked up Corporal, they sent me back to school to get certified in hydraulics and cryogenics. So the training was phenomenal. Um, you know, I graduated top of my class A school, top of my class C school. So I got to choose where I wanted to be stationed. And because I was from Colorado, I wanted to be on the West Coast. Well, I thought that the only base I could be stationed on was Miramar in San Diego. But I didn't realize is there was a small detachment in the middle of the Mojave Desert in 29 Palms. So that's actually where I spent the two and a half years of my active duty after school was stationed in the middle of the Mojave Desert, 29 Palms. So sandstorms, desert, and our work center was a giant tent. So trying to work on avionics gear in the sand was challenging, but it also gave us, gave me a lot of resiliency, which allowed me to, to really rise to the top, you know, as, as a young uh, work center supervisor, as well as a collateral duty inspector, where I would inspect other Marines' work to make sure that it was safe to go out on the flight line. So it was good for that. Um, my high school sweetheart and I got married. I wore my dress blues to our wedding, which was, you know, awesome. There's nothing like dress blues to to really dress up some photographs, wedding right, photographs. Right. And then my daughter was born on the in the Navy hospital there in 29 Palms. And so my daughter's a Navy brat, or I mean, a Marine Corps brat, and she just graduated from college uh, two weekends ago with a bachelor's degree in nursing, and right out of school has five job offers. So, I mean, she's done very well for herself. She's she's a hard worker, you know, and of course, she learned that from my wife and I, and because it's never say die, never give up, you know, and deny all, demand proof, and... Uh, when in doubt, kill them all and let God sort them out. So take no prisoners. <laughs> uh, what? So how does uh, one leave the Marine Corps? Like they, they don't have, or I should ask you rather, like what was your process of going from that to being a coal miner? Because they don't seem related on the surface. So totally, totally not. Like? My, my dad is a retired underground coal miner. He worked 41 years underground and so I grew up as a coal miner's kid, kind of with the idea that I didn't necessarily want to be a coal miner. The money is fantastic, but the exposure is is pretty epic. It's definitely, you know, in the top 10 um, most dangerous, deadliest jobs in this country. And so I didn't necessarily want to go into back, you know, go into coal mining but I wanted to move back home. I mean, the mountains of Colorado are amazing. They were really calling me back home. And now that I had a daughter after having struggled on military wages, you know, it, and with all of the training that I had, I came back and went to work in the coal mines. And I worked at a different coal mine from my dad. And that was mainly because there's no way that I could follow in his footsteps he is a maniac. I mean, he's the hardest working, most highly productive. As a matter of fact, he retired and a, a contracting company called him and offered him crazy amount of money to go work for them as a consultant to help them improve their productivity 
as a contract mining crew. So now he's working a couple of days a week, making the same amount of money that he did as a, a, a general mine foreman or a CM coordinator. And so I, I came back to home, back home, went to work in the coal mines, and actually just under a year I, I had worked in the coal mine. My middle brother was involved in a car wreck and was killed. And um, so the coal mine gave me a week off, you know, bereavement leave. And then I went back to work. And two weeks to the day to the hour, I allowed myself to get in a bad situation and got crushed between a piece of equipment and a trailer and broke both of my legs. And so I spent six months in a wheelchair. I have a rod in one leg with four screws and three screws in the other ankle. And at that time, my surgeon and the work comp lawyer said, you'll never have to work another day in your life. Um, you know, these injuries are extreme. Uh, you, you'll be able to, you know, draw whatever, you know, kind of government support. And at that time, I said, the only way that I'm going to do that is if I can come and work in one of your guys' offices and make the same amount of money that I made in the coal mine, because I am not one of those people that milks the system. If I can physically go back to work, I will go back to work. And so I did. I went back to work and worked another 14 years. Um, and that the surgeon said if I went back to work, that more than likely my ankle joint wouldn't even last a year. Because as an underground coal miner, you're carrying like 40 pounds of gear on your belt, uh, self-rescuer, cap lamp, battery, uh, and hand tools. And then as a mechanic, you have even more tools than that. And, and I did anyways. And, and honestly, now that I'm on a predominantly um, animal-based diet with very few uh, seed oils and super limited on the processed grains and sugars, I have almost no problem with inflammation other than when I put in one of those days where I have, you know, 10 or 12 miles of fence to fix and I'm packing a chainsaw and fencing tools and stuff hiking up and down the mountains. Um, and so contrary to what most people do when they get injured in that kind of situation, they're like, well, yeah, I'll take the easy way out, you know, to be in and I'll, and I'll be a draw on the system. I'm the complete opposite end of the spectrum and oftentimes just push through the pain um, because that's also what I wanted to teach my kids, right? right. I mean, no matter mm -hmm. what adversity is gets thrown at you, you can always overcome it if you have enough mental toughness to do it. Yeah. What for the prior to the accident, what was it? What's it like working in a coal mine, a coal mine? And like, you're underground all day, I presume, you know, only on that only like electronic lighting to as light. I mean, what's what's it like down there? What's the air like? What's the work like? I mean, give me, I have no idea. Right? Well, I mean, so modern coal mines are, it's kind of resembles like a giant parking garage, right? As far as you drive in the side of the mountain in a one ton Dodge truck or a one ton Ford truck, that's equipped with all of the federal um, additions for it, for, for fire suppression, adequate lighting, all of those things. And you can drive, um, drive to the working section. And when you get to the working section, you park in, you know, in one of the cross cuts 
and you walk to your equipment, most of it is electric powered. So we actually run 12,470 volts in the mine in a cable that's hanging from the roof. And then it goes to a transformer station and then all of our individual pieces of equipment plug into that. You have a continuous miner that actually cuts the coal and it has a chain conveyor in it. And it conveys either into a shuttle car, which is electric um, coal hauler or a ram car, which is a diesel coal hauler. And then after you mine, let's say a 40 foot deep by 12 foot wide block of coal, you back one machine out, you take another machine in there called a roof bolter, and you actually drill holes in the rock roof and um, use uh, resin grouted rebar bolts. They look like a piece of rebar with the head on them. And you drill a hole, put a stick of glue that has two part epoxy resin in it. You run that bolt in the hole, spin it around and mix it, hold it against the roof, and then that holds the roof up. Because what you're doing by that is you're, you're solidifying the natural bridge in the roof. Because like mm. in, in um, old mines, you know, you had this arched back because that's like the strongest natural shape. And so whenever you would mine in, let's say, a gold mine or even like our irrigation tunnels that we just did repair on last week, um, it's a it's a natural arch back because it will support the load above it. Um, but in a coal mine, it's a square entry, so you have to use mechanical bolts to kind of put that bridge in to support it. And then what we're doing with the CM mining, continuous mining, is we're mining big blocks so you can take what's called the long wall mining um, machine and and install it, and it's. Um, between 850 and 1,000 feet long, and it it can mine that whole block essentially continuously. Um, and then it, the coal dumps on a conveyor belt and then goes outside where it is crushed and screened to sized, and then it gets loaded into a rail car to either go, go to a steam coal factory or a steam coal power plant. Interesting. Um, okay, so the injury happens, you move to the office, and how does, what's the transition from that to getting into regenerative ranching? Well, that was the thing is, is after the injury, I didn't go to work in the office, I literally went back to doing the exact same job that I was doing before I was injured. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And so, and, and at that point in time, it was a it was a matter of pride that I was going to move up. If I was going to be trading time for money, I was going to do everything in my power to move up the chain. And so I, I went back to work as a utility man in a CM section. And then I went to work as an out by utility man equipment operator. And then from there, I went to the long wall and I worked on the long wall because that's really the money making crew and section because you can literally mine a thousand to twelve hundred tons an hour on that piece of equipment and so if you're mining at your quota you're making you know a hundred thousand dollars a day um or you mean per the mine shift. is making that the mine is making that on that piece of equipment from there i went and actually transferred to another mine i quit went to work for another mine and became a mine electrician 
a federally licensed mine electrician. And then a year after that, I went and got my um, mine foreman papers, my dust certification, my first responder, every certification that I could get. Um, and then I ended up going back to the previous mine for a weekend job because my wife was going to go back to work to become a nurse. Or I mean, going to go back to school to become a nurse so I could work on the weekends, watch my kids um, during the week while she was in school. And it wasn't long after that that I was promoted to a foreman of a CM crew, then I was promoted to a maintenance foreman, and then I was promoted to a shift superintendent. So for the last five and a half years that that coal mine was open, I was a shift superintendent um, in my late 20s, early 30s, um, which is one of the one of the youngest shift superintendents in the industry. But it, like I had said, I mean, if I was going to be trading time for money, I was going to make as much money as I could while I was there. Um, and I have a knack for communication and finding out what motivates people. And so it's one of those things where you could, some guys have to be yelled at. Some guys have to be coddled. Some guys just have to be told, you know, you do a good job. And some guys, no matter what you do, they only have one speed and that's the most you're ever going to get out of them. So put them at a job that they can be successful at that speed. And so oftentimes I would inherit all of the problem children that the other foreman or shifts couldn't deal with because their bosses were a lot of old timers that they were raised that the only way that you get respect is if you is out of fear. So you're constantly yelling at your guys, you know, and belittling them and all of that stuff. Well, the younger generation absolutely don't respond to that. And so I would get these, you know, young guys that were studs, they just got, had been treated bad. So you treat them good and you find out what they want to do and, you know, and, and you help them get there. Um, so then we were setting records on footage and tonnage and safety records and all of those things. And we had, we could work together in a way. And those guys trusted me enough that there's a handful of them that I could call them today and say, I have a body I need to get rid of they would come and help me. I mean, that's because it's 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 a it's very similar to the military. I mean, because you are relying on the guy to your left and your right to do their job right to make sure that you're going to be safe. Because mm -hmm. we dealt with water inundation, we dealt with methane gas, you know, we dealt with coal dust. Um, I mean, coal is flammable and coal dust is explosive. And so if you're not doing your job correctly, you can blow the mine up and kill everyone that's in it. And so it's it's super important that everybody is on the same page and communicating, looking out for one another, much like the military. Yeah, I bet. So how did that lead into the regenerative ranching stuff, you know, leaving the coal industry and moving into to farming, basically? Right. So, you know, I married my high school sweetheart and her folks had a cattle ranch. And I helped out on the ranch when I was in high school. You know, I was the, the free labor gung-ho trying to impress my hopefully future mother-in-law and father-in-law at the time. And so when my wife and I graduated high school, they sold all of the cows and they'd been leasing this place out to other conventional cattlemen. And it had been getting more and more and more degraded every year. Mm. And finally, I approached them and said, can I lease the place? 
I offered them more for the lease than the previous lessee had offered them or been paying them. I mean, just give me a chance. And of course, they were totally against it because they had never made money. And it was always really a subject of contention between my mother-in-law and father-in-law. They were city slickers that bought the ranch to get away from L.A. And so they were here more or less just to get away and get fresh air. And they had been educated as far as how to manage it by the local land grant university extension just to do conventionally and spread synthetic fertilizer and continuously graze and just you know just what's got us in the situation we are kind of in agriculture across this country and me with my crazy ideas and and just wanting to do it differently they're like oh my gosh you know you'll have no support from the community we don't think it'll work you know, you're going to put all this time into it just to fail. I convinced them to let me do it anyway. So for the first few years, it was more or less just replanting, uh, repairing all the irrigation infrastructure, and just really kind of getting a feel for the potential. And um, so then I started making hay and selling hay off of it. And every once in a while, you'd have a crop of hay get rained on, and then you couldn't hardly give it away. So that's when we decided to buy some cattle. So we would have cattle to feed that damaged or less quality hay to. And so I spent a whole year researching breed associations and marketability, and I settled on Black Angus cattle. So we started buying registered Black Angus cows, and uh, I learned how to do artificial insemination. And so we could breed our own cows, raise our own bulls, and we started selling registered Angus bulls. And one of those bulls didn't have the, the numbers, you know, since they're all registered, you have all of these EPDs, expected progeny differences, you know, like 20 some different traits that they measure and you get a, you know, a number. It didn't have the traits, you know, necessary to be marketable as a bull. So we castrated it, fed it and ate it, butchered it, ate it ourselves, shared it with friends and family. And they were like, this is the best beef we've ever had. Um, how can we get some of that beef ourselves? So that kind of started us down the path of selling direct to consumer. So the next year, I think we did three and then seven and then 12. And then last year we did 27. And then this year we actually have 40 beeves that we're feeding that are out on pasture that we're feeding to butcher and sell direct to consumer. Wow. You You mentioned a few minutes ago that um, you know, part of, well, I think you framed it, you said it this way, you know, we want to regenerate the land and the soil and beef, you know, cattle just happens to be the most effective way of doing that. Like, where did your interest in regenerative, like ranching, doing things differently, not pursuing the same approach that let's say your parents-in-law did, where did that come from? Where did this sort of, you know, I hesitate to use this term because it's very, uh, loaded these days, but this sort of environmental consciousness come from uh, for you? Believe it or not, it came from my grandfather. So when I was a kid, when I was big enough to be able to spend time with my, my grandpa, Albert Martinez, and my grandma, Virginia, on their small farm, listening to what he talked about, about how he farmed, and how his father farmed and how his grandfather farmed. Um, they farmed before synthetic fertilizer. 
They farmed before antibiotics for cattle. They farmed before vaccinations uh, for animals. You had to manage your land and your animals according to your goals. And, and he, he would say, uh, he would say, mijito, you have to pay attention to the cattle and the sheep and the grass and, and the land and the dirt. It tells you what you need to do. It, it tells you if you have too many of these kinds of weeds, you need to do this. If, you're, if your cattle look like this and your goats and your sheep look like this, this is what you do. If your pigs, you know, um, have worms, you need to take your dishwater from washing dishes and pour that in their feed trough so they drink the soap because that'll help clear out their worms and, and just so many things that were that have been lost because of, of course, the 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 Carter era era, you know, uh, Earl Butts, go big or go home, feed the world mechanize everything, you know, wipe out the small family farms. So much of that information, instead of learning it from our grandparents and parents and passing it on to our kids, we we go to a land-grant university or we go to a, a pharmaceutical company or a seed company or an equipment company to tell us what we should do and how we should manage versus actually using what I call observational science to tell us what it is that we're doing wrong and what we need to do to improve it and make it better. And, and so I, really I attribute so much of it to my grandfather and as a six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old kid, it was, oh, that's just grandpa talking, but it was actually him trying to teach me because I'm the only grandkid who's in ag. Everyone else, you know, works in town. And unfortunately, most of them are, are, you know, products of the state system. And so they're Medicare, Medicaid, you know, subsidized housing, all of those things, not, not even working necessarily. Um, so I'm trying to carry on his legacy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I, I've spoken, I find this subject extremely fascinating as I think a lot of Bitcoiners are starting to do. And I've spoken to a lot of people that have pretty much started new careers in, you know, regenerative agriculture, ranching. And I often ask, you know, well, they often tell me, you know, that they're, some of them work in, in obviously areas where there's a lot of ranching going on and they're doing things differently than their neighbors. And so their neighbors are kind of like, well, like, what are you doing? And most often, the, at least initially, the neighbor's opinion is that, oh, it's not going to work. You have to do it, for lack of a better term, in the fiat way, right? Because you have to try to maximize yield. You got to use the fertilizers, fertilizers and all that stuff to maximize your, uh, you know, your hay yield or your grass yield so that you can maximize your, your meat yield. And you got to use all the pharmaceuticals and all that kind of stuff to do it. And, you know, all of those come with costs also, right? And then they have the, you have the Bitcoin or ranchers, let's say, who are taking a more uh, balanced, a more natural sort of approach to things and doing away with those things. And maybe, yes, in the short term on one metric, which is yield, it's less, but also what is your yield in terms of the soil health? What is your 
uh, yield in terms of the actual physical health that's to derive from using this form of sustenance? What is the yield in terms of the community that you garner, that you build, that you contribute to, right? So there's all these metrics that the fiat farmers aren't really considering. And as you say, I mean, I think a lot of the, the detrimental developments in, in fiat farming are literally a result from fiat. Now, I'm sure we could spend hours talking about that, but one that is often just kind of identified is one, you have everyone this with this melting ice cube, i.e. whatever revenue, whatever income you're able to generate, it becomes a melting ice cube. And so that keeps you on that hamster wheel of having to to focus on that one particular metric of yield because you just, you need to, because somehow your purchasing power is being siphoned away. And then by virtue of being in that system, the, the you see all this consolidation because the bigger operation you are, the more access to capital you have, that you can scoop up, you know, these smaller operations that may have been doing things differently, put everything on, under the same operational umbrella in terms of like how you go about doing things, just drive the, the ecosystem as hard as you can to maximize yield and use, you know, whatever financing is available to you to, to cover up the, 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 the pitfalls, wherever they may be. And then you get your, your Tyson's and your Monsanto's and your uh, Archer Daniels and these of the world, because that's the fiat, that's the result of the fiat system in relation to agriculture and food, let's say. And then what's interesting with Bitcoin is you flip, you basically flip that on its head and you establish a more natural, you, you kind of reintroduce the natural order of, of things to farming, to the act of, of farming, to the individuals, the, the, the health that results from the proceeds of that farming, the community, et cetera, et cetera. And it's so evident that it's a superior approach on pretty much every metric. And again, we could probably spend a long time talking about what those metrics might be, but what has your, been your experience in doing things differently? I'm sure people have taken note you know, what, what's happened like for you? Well, that's an interesting observation as far as the neighbors looking at you, like what in the hell are you doing? You know, um, the interesting thing for us, what I found is by year two of not using any synthetic fertilizer, our hay yield is the same or better than the neighbors that continue to apply synthetic fertilizer every year. But that's because synthetic fertilizer kills all the soil microbes, beneficial bacterial, bacteria, mycorrhizae. It actually changes the pH in the soil enough because all it's doing is feeding the plants. It's actually killing all of the bugs in the soil, which are doing the same thing that synthetic fertilizer is doing, but they're actually mining it from the soil and from the biomass that's left in the soil. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I still have neighbors who look down their nose at what we're doing, like all of this electric fence that we string out and moving cows every one to three days and all of, you know, just on and on and on and on. And also say the, the only way that you could have raised good beef is if you feed it grain. Whereas for us, we are a grass fed and finished, you know, no grain ever, no byproducts ever. Um, but the eating experience is much better. So with, why, did, why do they think these things? Why do they think they need the fertilizer? Why do they think they need to use grain? Like, is this just... Well, you, you have the biggest uh, national beef organization, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, 
which when the Beef Association combined with the Cattlemen's Association, all of the power went to the Packers, you know, and so they've been dictating a lot of that policy, but their educational stuff and the studies that they've funded says the only way that you, that you can have a good eating experience is by um, feeding cattle byproducts and or grain. And the only way to get there is to use synthetic fertilizers to be able to raise enough feed to have high enough yield that you'll be able to do that. Um, the other thing too, is they can get, people can get subsidies or paybacks on their commodity crops. You know, they can buy insurance that's subsidized through the USDA. Whereas for me, just raising forage, just raising grass, there aren't any programs for that as far as subsidies or insurance. Right. They just started one for straight alfalfa. So the alfalfa farmers that, you know, would have poor yields, you can buy insurance on that. Um, the other thing too, is there isn't any insurance through the USDA specifically for cattle loss um, just across the board. So your management practices need to be as such to where you keep your herd health up. And because we are no um antibiotics no hormones and this year we're actually doing no um vaccinations at all so our calves when we branded got no vaccinations and you should have seen the look on the faces of some of my friends when i told them that we didn't vaccinate they they couldn't imagine it they they are talking like well what happened when all of your calves die because they get sick and i tell them well that what that means is we our practices have to be as such that we don't allow them to get sick. Like we will never graze pastures so short that they're ingesting their own poop and pee and dirt because a lot of the bugs live in the dirt that causes problems. And we can't leave them on a place long enough that they're going to be taking second and third bites on the same grass. We want to keep them moving to where they're grazing on the top sides of the plants, not on the bottom sides of the plants. And also we want to make sure that we are moving rapidly enough that we keep it mowed short enough that they're not getting scratches in their eyes from tall grass and seed heads. So we don't have to worry about pink eye and the flies that come with it. Um, so it makes us very accountable to our practices, which we're doing anyways. So we shouldn't have any problems. And, and they still just shake their heads like we're completely crazy. The, the great thing about that is, is our customers want that. Mm. They are supporting us for our land management and our animal management practices, and they are willing to pay for it. And so, you know, I call them all my customer partners because without my good customers, I wouldn't be in business. Mm. And that's what really drives me to get up in the morning and continue to do the best that I can do every day. So all of our cattle have a good day until the last day. And that's the only bad day they'll ever have. What was the reason for waiting until this year to institute a policy like that, like the no vaccination policy? Uh, we wanted to make sure that our herd health was strong enough and that we had not brought in any new cattle. Like we had not bought any fresh cattle that wouldn't already have the herd immunity that our herd currently has. So I actually took on some cows to, uh, I say, babysit for a friend of mine. He sold his farm on the front range and needed a place for his 
his 12 cows to go. And so I offered to bring them in. And so they've been with my herd for a little over a year now. So now everybody's completely co-mingled. They've shared all of their bugs back and forth. So we shouldn't have any problems with exposure from any new cattle. Is part of the reason why, again, I'm sure there's a lot of lovely people out there, but the, the fiat approach to ranching, let's say, is part of the reason why you get these sort of surprised uh reactions from people and the and equally part of the reason that allows you to go about things this way is because of that direct to consumer relationship because you cut out the middleman because you get to you know so let's say your your costs are a little bit higher maybe it's your time maybe it's some other input but you're able to make that up via your direct to consumer relationship and most of them are just sending it off to to packing companies and therefore you know there's a huge middleman cost Absolutely. And the other thing too, that I've found, because I've had, I've tried to get quite a few of my friends that are conventional cattlemen. I've tried to convince them to save a few heifers or a few steers to market direct to consumer, because there is enough market to be able to do that just so they can see the profitability difference between selling commodity wean calves in the fall versus butchering two-year-olds the following fall. And what I'm finding is so many of them rely on Medicare, Medicaid for their health benefits that they are captured in this um, poverty because if they've actually made any more money, they would have to buy private health insurance. And so they want to be in this below poverty profitability um, because they say they couldn't afford to make any more money. But then they complain about the cattle markets and the cost of equipment and the cost of fuel and all of these things, but they aren't willing to do anything about it, which is, again, that's another change of, of state of mind, which that's mm. the hardest thing to change is your thought process. Um, but yeah, a lot of them are completely comfortable with what they're doing and they don't want to do any more work to do something different because direct to consumer takes a ton more time than just loading your calves on a tractor trailer in the fall and sending them to a feedlot somewhere in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you say that stuff, man. And it's like, it's so, it's crazy how perverse the decision-making has become because of all these weird fiat regulatory incentive, false incentive structures that have been erected so that people are making decisions like that uh, based on insurance costs and whatever bracket you find yourself in and all that kind of stuff. It's so, you know, it's so crazy. Like it, the, the, the metric should be many of the things we mentioned earlier, like the health of the land, the health of the animal, the health of the individuals consuming that the lifestyle that's created the principles in which, you know, those actions and behaviors are constituted, all that kind of stuff. Like that should be what you consider. Those are the important things, not how do I game the system so I can like find the sweet spot between you know, how much I work, how much I, I get given and, and minimize the, I don't know, minimize the work involved. It's just, I mean, so emblematic of, of how the base layer screws up so many things. Ultimately, you know, the problem in the base layer just manifests in so many other uh, systemic problems. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that and that's the thing for me is I will love to make enough money that I have to pay taxes. I mean, that means I've figured out enough things um, that I actually have to pay taxes. So that's going to do two things for me. Number one, it's going to give me the opportunity to put money in the bank. If you have enough of a surplus that you can put money in the bank for a rainy day fund and pay taxes, it's it's a for me, it's a big win-win. Mm. Um, because we own no land and we lease almost, well, actually, it's a little over 4,000 acres currently. There's a ridiculous amount of expenses, even just in upkeep as far as maintaining fences and corrals mm. and equipment and and so it, it's tight i mean margins are super tight but the margins are actually better than they are with the guys that are just selling calves you know to go to a feedlot somewhere and that's what i try to to tell everyone is like just try and feed five and sell them direct to consumer and take that additional five hundred dollars ahead um, and take your family on vacation. You know, if, if finances are so tight that you can't even get away, here's an opportunity for you to market five calves and take that $2,500 additional income and take your, your family on a vacation. I mean, because your kids are only kids for so long, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And, and you, that's the one thing you can't make more of is time. So you have to be willing to take the time to enjoy your family when they're young um, versus, you know, just working your whole life away. Yeah. You know, as is, as so many Bitcoiners, I think, come to appreciate once they spend enough time thinking about all this stuff is just how consequential one's values and, and principles are. And of course, you know, it's been my observation that the more time people spend in Bitcoin, the more they think about those values and the more they kind of get rearranged or reordered. But, you know, simply to say, if people, I mean, your actions reveal what you value, right? So with you taking this approach about like, sure, maybe it's more work and the profit margins are, are slim and, and all the, you know, all the consequences of those decisions, but it means you derive a satisfaction from how you go about doing things, what you're actually, you know, growing, contributing to participating in providing to people. And that satisfaction as you know a return let's say as a type of yield you know for most people doesn't seem to be part of the equation right the yield is purely dollars and cents bank account zeros that's it and whatever optimizes that is is you know like in your in their own mind good regardless of values and principles and other you know downstream consequences and all that kind of stuff and what i really love about this space and you know there's obvious exceptions, but as a, as a general rule, it seems to be from my observations is that this crowd of people, you know, the Bitcoiners are valuing values and principles more than your average person. And as a result, they're acting in accord with them. And when they do so, and the, the returns that accrue as a result, that is a type of yield that factors into the worthwhileness of doing any given thing. And, you know, what it seems to be producing is well noble truthful you know kind of coherent cohering with natural order principles in whatever domain of action or enterprise they seem to be pursuing and uh you know i i think it's great and i think what's really great is that 
if we're right about this Bitcoin thing, I think doing things that way will ultimately become the dominant incentive. Because right now it's not, right? And we talk about these fiat incentives and it causes this kind of perversion in people's minds, or at, ver at the very least, it causes a tension between, well, do I do what maximizes my fiat yield or I do what maximizes my moral or ethical yield, to put it in those terms? And there's a tension there. And oftentimes you just, you have to go with the former because you have needs and you have a family and you have all that kind of stuff. But it seems to me that, you know, if Bitcoin continues to do what we expect it to do and become, you know, ascend to that role that we, we hope for it, I feel like doing things in line with true right and good principles will actually become the things that are incentivized the most. And then you get the best of both worlds. Then you get prosperity, comfort, optionality, convenience with a moral and ethical and principled and value-based grounding and, and orientation. And, you know, what would be the outcome of that? I mean, we can only, we can only, you know, speculate, hope and, and enthusiastically anticipate, you know? Well, and that's the thing for me, everything that I do is based on the soil, right? And so a lot of times it takes more time. I almost always get less yield because I refuse to graze it so short that it's going to hurt it. But the land is the legacy that we leave behind that someone else can prove that we did the work. The, the amount of money in our bank account, once you're gone, matters nothing to no one. No one ever brags about, my dad left me a million dollars or whatever, because before you can say, holy cow, it's gone, right? But the, the, the quality of the soil, the improved soil, you know, the resiliency of the plants, that's something that will last for generations as long as someone is around to enjoy it. So there's a sign, you know, with our logo hanging at the end of our driveway and people can come and see what it is that we're doing, why we're doing it and the improvements that we continue to make every day. You know, you were talking about the priorities of, of Bitcoiners, you know, and, and the decisions that they make. You know, it, it goes back to biblical times when you had, you know, the, the people selling, you know, trinkets in, in, the, um, in the church, you know what I mean? Offerings to offer up to their God and all of those things. And, and you look at what their priorities were, capitalizing on the fears of the churchgoers versus, you know, just doing the Lord's work. And that's the thing for me is every single day, I am doing my best to make the world a better place for the next generation, because we can only control so much. And we have to be the change that we want to see. It's really easy for people to LARP, you know, and sit down at the computer and write, reports and, and stuff about grazable acres and tillable acres and animal impact and all of that stuff. But the people that actually go out and get their hands dirty and stick their neck out and sweat all day actually doing it, those of us doing it are what's really going to make a difference. And then my customers who may not have the opportunity to get out and do the real work they're supporting me by buying meat from me that's produced a way that they're in alignment with, with their goals and their morals and, you know, what, what they feel is right and good. Mm -hmm. And, 
that's the amazing thing with the Bitcoin space. Like you were saying, I mean, when we truly take a step back and reevaluate our, our priorities, it makes it really easy for our health to be pretty high on that priority list. And if you're sourcing good, wholesome animal protein from people who take it very seriously, you know, that are, are raising forages that are grown in, in good living soil, who are every year improving carbon sequestration, plant diversity, all of those things, you know that those plants mine those nutrients out of the soil. And then when the cattle eat it, they express all of the benefits of that healthy grass in their meat. And then when we eat it, we get all of the health benefits of that as well. And that's, I mean, I, I spend some time talking to people and maybe um, cooling their jets on, on what their goals are. And that's because I speak from my heart and from what I know, the realities of what I know. And I know that there are very few people that have, number one, either deep enough pockets, or number two, have a strong enough backbone to literally be on the verge of financial ruin to see their regenerative farming and ranching goals to fruition. Mm -hmm. Typically in this space, because where we are, we have this drought cycle that happens about every five years. And so you'll have a new landowner come in with big ideas, spend all of their cash reserves, fix and fence, um, building a big fancy barn and building big fancy pens and corrals, spend all their money buying, you know, a bunch of cows. And then by the time the next drought cycle comes around, they can't raise enough hay to feed their cattle. And then they don't have enough calves because they had to sell cows to service their debt. And so then they lose the whole thing either back to the bank or to whomever the landowner was that owner carried it for them. You know, in my 44 years of life, in about 30 years of involvement um, in the neighborhood, as far as farming and ranching, it has happened countless amounts of times. Whereas for us, it's completely bootstrapped. This is a cash and carry operation. There is no venture capital. There's no family money. Um, there's no investors. I mean, nothing. It's it's just a lot of hard work and, and a little innovation um, and a lot of mistakes along the way. And that's the thing for me is I've I've I'm kind of throwing around the idea of maybe doing some classes um, or or some education based um, hands on learning to help people truly understand the physical toll it takes, the mental, emotional toll it takes, and then also just share the numbers of the business, because I would love to have a thousand more operations just like ours all over the West, because it builds this um, security and this resiliency that we don't currently have with the system, with these you know, 10,000 to 50,000, 100,000 head feedlots and these huge multinational processing facilities. I would much rather have, you know, 1,070 cow outfits all over 
uh, doing what we're doing, selling direct to consumer. Absolutely. You know, as you, when you're saying, um, you know, healthy soil, healthy grass, healthy cow, healthy human, you know, what it makes one think is like, I referred to the natural order a few times in this discussion already, but like, that's what it, it makes you think of like integrated with the natural order of things, uh, a, a virtuous cycle, right. Versus again, the, the fiat system would almost, you know, if it's not the complete opposite of that, it would seem to, you know, uh, like interrupt that, that integration at certain points. Right. And so it, it, it actually, unhealthy whatever input whether it's the soil the grass unhealthy animal unhealthy individual and you know ultimately unhealthy impact broader scale on the environment the planet what have you because it's you know that's it's lost that integration it's 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 de it's detached uh from that natural order and these are the results you know and that's why there there, there is kind of a virtue in natural order because it, it, it there's a the result the consequences of doing it properly or improperly are evident, you know, and, and it's evident that one way is better and one way is worse. And, you know, what a funny thought, or not funny, but just actually kind of interesting, which I've never thought about it this way before, but when you were saying uh, something about like, you know, you want your, your grandkids or something to be proud of, of the work you did, like, wouldn't it be so cool in the future? Like, let's say two, you know, young, you know, teenagers, are hanging out and one brings the other to their their family ranch and there's there's so much knowledge and appreciation for these practices what is right what is wrong the what it takes to actually build these things like again the, the principles and the virtues and the determination and all that that all that adherence to those things despite the work to actually create a certain outcome wouldn't it be cool if like one of them just picked up like a big handful of soil and could just look at the other one and say your grandfather was a good man a good man, not like he was a good rancher or this is a great soil, but by virtue of what he was holding in his hand and knowing how much work uh, it, it would take to produce that, could look at the other and say he was a good man. The ethical component is right there in the soil. You know, wouldn't absolutely maybe, maybe and that's we'll a, get there. Well, that's the thing for me is what I'm finding is is um, people are hungry for the knowledge, right? I mean, I was lucky enough to be gifted it from a master, from my from my grandfather, who had learned it from his father, who had learned it from his father. Um, so for him to pour that in on me, I am just so lucky. And I want to share that with other people. And they are hungry for that knowledge because you can't go on and do a Google search of, you know, what's the best way to grow grass? Because it'll give you how many tons of nitrogen and how many tons of phosphorus and how many tons of potassium to, you know, apply per acre and what varieties of grass grow best in your area and all of those things. It's not like, oh, well, you need to start with uh, looking at the soil, mapping out a three foot by three foot and count how many species of grass are in there, what the density is, dig one of them up, look at what the length of roots on that grass are what are the healthy ranges for that you know uh, take some put it under take some soil put it under a microscope count how many nematodes and you know all there's so much more to it than what we've oversimplified it like 
apply this kind of herbicide, this kind of mm -hmm. pesticide at this rate, all of these things. And with no explanation of the repercussions, a good friend of mine who was a, a progressive cattle rancher, but he also had an orchard, died of cancer. And I'm, I am convinced that it was from all the sprays that they used in the orchard is what killed him. And on his one of his properties, because I'm leasing all of his properties from his widow, there are these original metal Roundup cans. They're, they're metal jugs. And um, he was one of the first farmers in our county to plant Roundup-ready corn for silage. And... Um, that piece of land that he planted Roundup Ready corn on and grew it for 25 years or 20 years, um, I'm still remediating it with crop rotations. And that's actually where I have some of my cows penned that I'm feeding hay that I brought in from another um, prop, um, prop from another property because Roundup ties up some of the nutrients in the soil. That's why it doesn't allow the weeds to grow. And then the corn has been genetically modified to not be um, impacted by that glyphosate. And so right now, pretty much the only thing that grows freely are noxious weeds. And what I've been doing is planting cover crops and then disking it back into the soil and then spreading manure, disking it back into the soil, planting an annual crop, grazing it, tilling its stubble back into the soil, just to try and remediate that. But of course, it was sold as, as a, a way to increase yields and reduce your labor. And really what it's done is killed a lot of soil and killed a lot of farmers. Yeah, you know, at some point in the future, I mean, many do now, of course, but even more in the future, we're, we're going to look back and just see the obvious folly of pursuing these approaches, you know, and in a case like this, and in so many cases, it doesn't, not just farming, but of course, you know, medicine and pharmaceuticals and finance and everything, the, the folly of identifying one particular metric and attempting to optimize for that, you know, kind of it, it, regardless of, of the cost. And just seeing all the detrimental effects of of doing that, um, and it's and and there, even now there's so many examples of doing that, identifying one thing amongst a complex system, which is already a stupid thing to do, but then developing a solution that only addresses that without considering the rest of the system, and then even even if it were effective, which obviously the systems are typically too complex for that to be a sensible approach, but even that one intervention, you know, 20 years later, they go, oh, actually, oops, yeah, this is doing way more harm than good. You know, whether it's Roundup, whether it's statins and, you know, in the in the pharmaceutical field, whether it's, you know, QE in the financial field, like, or, or you know, price stability or all this kind of stuff, like, it's just so common that it's, you know, take one thing out of a complex system, think that if you fix that carbon and the, the, the climate change stuff, if you fix that, you're going to fix everything. And what do you know? That was a way too simplistic analysis in the first place. And your intervention actually made a bunch of stuff way worse when you could have taken a more, you know, sensible, uh, broader, 
more naturally aligned approach from the per first place. You know, I, and I think the reason why we call this fiat so often is because a lot of those approaches are born out of the structure systems and institutions that fiat permits, right? Like you wouldn't be able to impose that sort of approach so broadly, if not for the the power structures and institutions that fiat allows for, and that, you know, necessarily or inevitably arises from it. And so, you know, I, I, I keep coming back to this idea of integration because it really seems like that's, that's what it is. And I think that Bitcoin is going to be that kind of uh, initial catalyst for, you know, bringing us back to a more integrated and more natural order state. And, and I, I noticed on your, um, your website that I, you know, I think part of your approach is so-called biodiversity, you know, or biodiverse farming. And I'd love to ask you a bit about that because I find it, one of the things that intrigues me about what you do um, is not only like the, the physical aspect of it, you know, how much proof of work basically there is in doing that, but also in how much you're probably, uh, how much more closely you, you come to observing the natural systems that you're out in. Like when you're out in the field with the animals and the plants and all that kind of stuff, 10, 12, 14, whatever hours a day, you know, you're going to notice a lot more than the office worker who, you know, goes home at 5 p.m. and watches Netflix. And you're going to see the influence of the water and the animals and the soil and the poop and the grazing. And does it, I mean, I can't, it must convey a, you know, like a, well, it must, it must deliver a type of consciousness that's way more tuned in to the cycles that occur in nature. And my understanding of a biodiverse sort of approach is like recognizing that and saying, how can we, you know, massage, shift, push, like steward this sort of system in a manner that's like maintains its natural order consistency or integrity, but also shifts it in a manner that's that optimizes it for flourishing, for flourishing, for our outcomes, for its outcomes, for the status of, of the animals that are within that ecosystem. So, you know, could you shed some light on that, what that approach means to you? Absolutely. And I mean, just, just as a general rule, we all came from agrarian roots somewhere. You know, it's not that far back, one, two, three generations that we too had this innate nature of understanding what danger was, what felt good, what smelled good, whatever that happened to be. We knew that because we had to know that because if we were going to eat meat and it smelled bad, we had to know whether it smelled bad. We didn't have to look at a, a label that said this is bad. Mm. And so in doing what I do, I allow all of my senses to be included in everything that I do. And so everything from sound, sight, smell, touch, taste. And so what we're doing is we're allowing the natural world around us to express itself. And then we shift our management to help it have the greatest gains that it possibly can. And so that's everything from soil structure. If we have a place where there's very thin topsoil and there's massive sandstone under it, we will feed hay on top of that land. So then all of the wasted hay, the manure and the urine will build up there and essentially just very quickly build this topsoil thicker. 
If we have an area that is sparsely populated with plants, I will use hay that has a little bit of mature seeds in it. So it's hay that was put up a little later and I will feed that hay on those areas. And so all of the seeds are still viable once they pass through the rumen of the cow. And so they actually poop the seeds out. So you have this handy little fertilizer packet with the seeds in it to help um, plant new grass. Um, and then the other thing too that we do, I spend a lot of time is observing the cattle the ones that perform the best in the environment that we have them in, those are the cattle that I wanna raise bulls out of to use on our cattle. And those are the ones that I wanna keep the heifers from to build our herd numbers up. And then as well as what I've started doing with my heifers is I only expose them to a bull for a short period of time. So the most fertile heifers will all be bred and any of them that aren't bred will then go into our beef program. So for whatever reason, they were not cycling adequately. Uh, maybe they had something physically or physiology, you know, physiologically wrong with them. And so we want to cull them out of the herd, but I don't want to sell them as a commodity product. I want to keep them and capture as much of the value as I can in my beef program. Um, and, and so with biodiversity, it includes everything. So we're, we're working on building resiliency in the most um, diverse and yet resilient plant species, because we have a lot of pastures that have improved um, non-native grasses, whether it's cool season grasses, warm season grasses. And then some of our pastures are like dry land desert plateau type of pastures, that have only native warm season grasses. And so what we'll do is we'll graze them when they're most palatable and most highly dense, and then we'll give them a long rest to allow them to go completely through their life cycle, make seed heads, and then after they've gone dormant, we'll graze them again. And that way the cows can disturb or uh, distribute those seeds in their manure. Um, and those are things that, the, the deer and elk, pronghorn, bison would have done on their own. But how we do that is with fencing, a, a lot of electric fence. So we can manage it, you know, with our rotations. And one of the most important things that we do is we never graze the same pasture at the same time uh, two years in a row. That way it can have a different level of maturity before we go back on that pasture to graze it which gives the opportunity for a more diverse mixture of grasses and legumes to thrive because we're not gonna be there to graze only the grasses that are coming up in the spring or only the grasses that are there available in the fall. So there's just a lot of moving parts and some of it is you know, reading books and, and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos. But for me, almost all of that is very, um, targeted at a local biosphere for wherever it is that it's produced. Whereas for us, being here in the arid, arid west, where we have irrigated land and native um, land, unirrigated dry land, 
it doesn't really apply to us. And we're so diverse that I can't do a blanket um, management strategy for all of these properties. They all need some specialized management strategies. And so I'll take a lot of notes, like we were in this pasture at this time this year. And so, so I have a note for reference for the next year, let's do it at a different time, or we'll start at the top and go to the bottom or vice versa. Um, so it takes a little bit of planning and, and there's, you make mistakes, but mother nature is very forgiving. If you give her the opportunity to recover and a lot of people, because they're stuck in this numbers game of like, I have to raise 300 calves to facilitate paying my note, you know, and this is what they'll sell for. They will overgraze because they don't have any options. Whereas for us, when we encountered our first really bad drought, I sold half of the cows to be able to pay cash to buy hay to feed the other half. So instead of completely liquidating, I was able to keep half of the cows, but that also made me coal very hard to only keep the very best cows that were doing the best in our environment and get rid of the ones that needed more feed than I was willing to, to feed or they had any problems calving or they had bad attitudes or bad feet or bad bags or whatever it happened to be. And so that gave me an opportunity to cull really deep and keep just the very best, uh, which is really just, I mean, exponentially increase, increase the quality of our herd. You know, as you're explaining that, you know, I, I think back to Bitcoin and my first thought was like, I was going to ask you, how do you see this propagating and playing out? Maybe that's where we touch on the, the beef, beef initiative stuff, like, you know, this becoming more prevalent. But I was also thinking, you know, okay, a, a, an uh, unexpected, you know, bad situation prevails, you know, something that interrupts uh, your systems or makes things harder and you have to call, you have to, you know, you have to prioritize, you have to make these, these unfortunate changes, let's say. Um, and it made me think of something like Bitcoin. And I, I never want to talk about Bitcoin with an expectation that it's, you know, always going to go up forever. You know, I think if it continues to uh, do what it does, then rational people will continue to use it for, you know, the utility that it has. And I think that means the price will go up. But we often talk about the optionality in Bitcoin or in money generally, like money is kind of like you could describe it in that way. It gives you greater optionality. So you don't just have blueberries to trade with or barter with. You have money, which opens up the entire market for you. But also, of course, across time, not just across diverse uses. And, you know, you could easily see a case where if more and more or the farmers, the ranchers that are using a money like Bitcoin, where it's not melting on them, where it's not being siphoned away, where it is presumably incrementally increasing, you know, in its purchasing power over the course of time, it gives you more options in how to deal with those situations, right? Because if you had a bigger war chest by virtue of taking 10% of your uh, your sales in Bitcoin over the last five years, then when an unexpected natural disaster, whatever event might befall your operation, you may have the flexibility to say, I'm not going to do the standard practice here because out of necessity, I have that much more optionality because I have my, my stored proceeds of my work in the past in this asset and that'll allow me to take a different approach and maybe that approach is more conservatory or maybe that approach you know maybe that approach is allows you to uh not take a step backwards in a sense maybe it allows you to continue on your march forward maybe it allows you to think more long maintain a more long-term view whatever but it really i mean 
Do you see that it, it performing that function over the course of time? Absolutely. You know, that's why I call it the life raft. You know, it's one of those things where I never want to have to sell any beef, or I mean, Bitcoin, but it's always there. And no matter where, you know, USD versus Bitcoin is, you have this chunk, you know, that you can say is an investment that's uh, value wise is as good as gold. But as far as accessibility, it's way better. Mm. Whereas if you had a gold bar and you had to try and take it somewhere and get, you know, whatever notes or seashells or beads or whatever you're happening to be trading in, it would be much more difficult to do. And so definitely I see it that way. I mean, for me, I would, I would love to see, you know, 200 K by conference day or whatever that happens to be. <laughs> but on the same token, um, I'm not planning on selling any Bitcoin. Um, that's why I have, you know, fiat on the savings account, or I have, I have cattle that are liquid enough that I could move tomorrow if I needed to in a pinch. Mm -hmm. The fantastic thing with, with the direct-to-consumer market is I think in lieu of selling a bunch of cows to buy hay, I would butcher a bunch of cows and offer ground beef at a great discount and maybe even offer a bigger discount for people paying in Bitcoin with the idea of instead of giving all that profitability to the packers, why don't I give that value to my great customers? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's one of those things moving forward. I hope we have a fantastic irrigation year happening this year. I mean, we have the biggest snowpack that we've ever had in record. Uh, we're doing a huge uh, canal improvement project on our irrigation canal. So it should conserve a lot of water. We should have better delivery. And so what I'm going to do is make as much hay as I can, stack it in the stackyard and tarp it you know, as, as an insurance policy. But in the, in the event that we do encounter another extreme drought year, um, I already have some plans and ideas of how, how best to weather them um, for everybody involved. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the point, right? The, the greater capacity you have, or the more options kind of saying the same thing, to weather whatever unexpected or unfortunate event the less you're backed into a corner and have to make perhaps, you know, a decision that you might otherwise not want to make. And I would say broadly, the fiat keeps backing you into a smaller and smaller corner. And that's why people have to cut those corners and they have to make those decisions that are ultimately not beneficial, perhaps to ideal towards ideal ends. And Bitcoin seems to be a tool where it, it takes you out of that corner over the course of time. And so you will be able to make better decisions and not have to you know, make those concessions or make those trade-offs over the course of time. And, you know, of course, all the better, because that's probably going to result in, 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 in broadly speaking, better outcomes. Um, before I ask you about the beef, beef initiative, uh, what's your, well, I'll set it up from my perspective. I'm, I'm an animal lover, as I know most of the ranchers I speak to uh, are, you know, just, there's no better way to put it. I love animals, pretty much all kinds, spending time with them, playing with them, all that kind of stuff. I'm also a big meat eater. I think it's the best way to sustain my health, to be as strong and capable as I want to be. And part of the way that I rationalize that, because of course, animals have to die for me to sustain myself, uh, is I, it's, a, it's one of the reasons why it helps me imbue my life with a sense of responsibility. And that responsibility is to that animal. And as far as I'm concerned, it, it means I should use 
the gift of energy and strength and capacity that they have given me as well as I can. Now, obviously I fuck up at that. I'm not a perfect person, all, all the rest of it, but it really is a, a conscious consideration that is ever present to me because I, I view it as a sacrifice, you know, and not one that they chose to make, obviously it's, it's one I made for them and I take it seriously, but I'm just curious, you know, being your, that's obviously the business you're in. How do you view the element of death in, in the work that you do? Well, you know, most of our cattle are registered cattle. So we actually give them names. And so we have literally a personal relationship with every animal. And don't get me wrong, there's some of them that have had a bad enough attitude that I was just happy to be rid of them when we hold them to the butcher, you know, because they were always the fence jumpers and they were always the ones rubbing on you, you know, trying to get you out of the way of the hay bale or whatever that happened to be. But for us, it is honoring them, number one, because we provided them the best life that they could possibly have. They had all of their needs always met, you know, um, and so that's why I promote eating nose to tail. I mean, there are a lot of people that the, if they could just eat ribeyes, that's all they'd eat. And that's why I really promote, you know, buying a quarter of a beef or a half a beef and then learning to eat all of the cuts, you know, and um, that way we can honor those animals and utilize not, not only every piece of the animal, but also all of the nutrients that you don't get in other cuts. I mean, a lot of those bone in cuts and roasts and soup bones and all of those things, a lot of the collagens and all of that stuff that you wouldn't get otherwise, you're going to get all the benefits of that if you're going to be eating those soups and stews and roasts. Um, and you notice it, you'll feel it. And so I, I, I'm always promoting like, well, let's honor the animal by eating every part of it that we can. Um, you know, we I did a little video with uh, um, Bridget McAtliff, and it actually aired on PBS. And um, in there, I got a little emotional talking about I personally haul every animal to the butcher, or I or I load every animal in the chute when we're we're um, killing on farm, and. Um, being there and seeing the life go out of their eyes is a very intimate and very powerful um, experience. And I don't take that lightly at all, you know, and I want all of my customers to know that when they're eating our beef, that those animals were treated the best that they possibly could and that they're getting the, the most comfortable and humane end to their life to ensure that none of the negative health effects that come from people, there's people that have wild cattle. And if you've ever eaten beef where they had to chase the cow around and around and around and load it in a trailer and haul it a long ways to the butcher, they release all of these stress hormones. The meat is gamey and it has this super tough, um, consistency. It's because the, the animals were so freaked out um, that they're expressing all of that negative experience in their meat. Whereas our cattle get hauled and moved around enough, they honestly think they're going to another pasture. And they'll step out at the butcher and look around like, and then they'll look at me like, this isn't a fresh pasture. What the heck's going on? And they literally walk right in and it's boom, that's it. 
um, no stress at all. And that's the way that we want it. And you can also, and you can just tell that in the quality of the meat. So do you think there'll be a time, you know, because as, as great as it seems like the things that you're doing and, and several others are beginning to, you know, there's, there's a type of inertia about how things used to be done. And it's not necessarily just in like which boxes you tick and, and how you feed and what you do or don't inject into the animal. But it's like, there's a culture around everything really. And that takes maybe a bit longer than just changing the approach to, to change itself. Do you think in the future, let's say there's more awareness, more interest, more people doing stuff like this, also less regulation, stupid regulations about what maybe you can and can't do around this stuff. Do you think, um, you know, the, the killing of, of these animals will become somewhat more, I want to be careful here because I know it happens so often. It's hard not to become somewhat jaded to things that you do all the time, but do you, do you, be, do you think it becomes somewhat ritualized? And I'll, I'll put a, a little bit more detail on that. Like if I was going to be buying, you know, a cow for my, my family, half cow or something like that to fill up the freezer, I think I probably would be interested in being there when that particular animal, if, you know, if I can be, if I, if I'm close to the butcher, which presumably I would be, or the farmer, I'd probably like to be there when that happens, just to be fully present and face to face with the reality of that. And, you know, I don't know what like a ritual around that would look like. Maybe it's just me kind of expressing my gratitude internally and, and making sure I realize the full gravity of what's happening. And, and that, that would be enough. But do you think that type of involvement with that process, you know, would emerge in the future? Or am I just being a little bit too romantic about this stuff? No, we've done that here. I've had customers that wanted to be there for the whole process. And so we've we've had them here from the time that we shoot it, bleed it, skin it, gut it. They were here for the entire process, splitting it down in half because they just wanted to see it. Um, and then they also wanted to have the fresh organs because, you know, apex predators, the first thing they eat are their other organs. They're going after the most nutrient dense. So they wanted to be able to take the freshly harvested organs with them um, and prepare them with whatever they were going to do for the, the end product there. And so we've done that. And that's not out of the question at all. And of course, they were willing to pay the premium to be able to be here and be involved in that, which I completely respect them for that. But some of them, it is, it becomes very emotional for them. You know, they having been so far removed from the farm and just from death, you know, unlike myself and my parents, you know, and my kids, you know, living on a farm, being raised on a farm, seeing death, butchering yourself, you know, and, and we're avid hunters. And so from the time I was old enough to hold a rifle, you know, we've been hunting big game and dressing them ourselves. And so we understand the importance of that. But many people have not, you know, and they think of it much differently than it is in reality. Um, that That's a, a, a cool thing with some of the bison farms is you could go on a, you know, a field slaughter and see your bison being killed, you know, and, and gutted and skinned and all of those things. Um, I don't know. I don't know about more people doing it because there's a fairly tremendous liability 
even if you just look at from the exposure, you know, whether it's social media, news, whatever kind of exposure there, there's a lot of people that are afraid of that. But one of the pillars of our business and operation is transparency. You can come and see the good, the bad, and the ugly. You can see the, the bull calf that I'm treating, you know, that's sick, doesn't look quite right. You know, everything from the calf that was born on a cold night and has part of its ear, you know, had froze, you know, the tip of it, you know, is missing, all of that stuff, it's just it's just part of the business. And, and I don't want to have anything hidden from anyone. And that's that's the biggest thing for us is I want I want us to get back to shaking our rancher's hand and having this intimate conversation with the people that are feeding us and not basing our preconceived notions on fear that have been built by, you know, multinational media conglomerates that are trying to control you through these one-off narratives. You know, I want people to get out and put in the sweat equity and, and figure out where their food comes from and support the people that are doing it, that they want it the way they want it done. A hundred percent. Well, this is the great, the great lead into the beef, beef initiative stuff. So, cause you know, especially on Bitcoin, Twitter and such these days, I mean, the uh, shake your rancher's hand, you know, line is, very prevalent and you know everyone pretty much everyone wants to do that everyone's looking for a good you know good rancher to buy meat from everyone's always taking photos of you know the ranch or their freezer or all this kind of stuff so it's really become a thing which is great you know i never anticipated that buying like regenerative uh regeneratively raised uh beef from a local rancher would be like what kick-started the bitcoin circular economy but here we are uh, so what, what was the, the genesis of that initiative? What, what, what's his, it's, um, you know, prime objective and, and how are things going? Things are going very well. I mean, we've had conferences all across the United States. Uh, Slim went over to Australia and did conferences over there. So now we have the Australian beef initiative. We have the Nigerian beef initiative. Um, it's, it's, it's been pretty amazing. It's been a wild ride. Um, two Novembers ago, this, you know, mysterious no-name guy DM'd me on Twitter and says, hey, I heard about you from a, a mutual friend. You know, I'd like to talk, you know, on the phone with you about what you're doing and what I'm thinking. Texas Slim. So I called him back and we talked for like two hours, our first conversation, because, of course, I'm very cynical of what I call like a used car salesman. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like everybody, it's popular right now to greenwash whatever your business is and piggyback on the on the backs of those of us that are out actually doing the work. So I'm very leery of that. And um, when he said his goal was to save children's lives through food education, and do it through the lens of the American rancher, I said, you're speaking my language because that's what I've been doing for you know five years previous to that. And so he forwarded me his um, substack, The Harvest of Deception, and I read about him you know, being embedded in the grain harvest and all of that stuff and talking to the kids that were on the harvest crew with him that when they would go to the grocery store would just fill up on a bunch of crap. And he would be over here, you know, cooking steaks or ground beef, like real meals. And 
and so many of them had no idea even how to eat, let alone how to cook wholesome food and just how important that is. And so it kind of like blew up from there. He says, we're going to do a conference in Kerrville. Would you be willing to come? And of course, for me at that time, it's a, it's a super tight financial time in my, in my beef business and the amount of farm work that needs to be done. I said, I'll make it work. I'll figure it out. So I flew in, drove to Kerrville, and it was what an amazing group of people. There were farmers and ranchers. There were Bitcoiners. There were small business owners. Um, and being able to just talk to those people, meet those people. And I mean, I've got some lifelong friends from that first encounter, um, which then spurred on to doing the conference here at our ranch which I bit off way more than I could chew. I mean, I'm one of those guys who's run and gun from one fire to the next, to the next, to the next. So our ranch looked like that. This project half done and this project half done. So to clear out enough of a space in the barn for us to be able to host a hundred people, but we did it and it was amazing. Um, I mean, Matt O'Dell came and we onboarded 56 people Farmers, ranchers, local townspeople with a moon wallet and everybody had an opportunity to transact and we did it in 15 minutes. And then he pulled up the uh, mempool on the overhead projector and we could actually watch every transaction in real time, <laughs> um, which completely blew the mind of so many people that had heard about all of the propaganda about Bitcoin and boiling the oceans and on and on and on and on, you know, all the FUD. Um, and they could see just how effective it was and efficient in, as far as transacting. So that was amazing. Um, and then our next conference was in at, at White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. And uh, Will Harris and his family are amazing, you know, what they're doing there. And, and like I was talking earlier about, you know, biodiversity and these uh, microclimates where different kinds of operations work, there it rains all the damn time. It's always green. I mean, they can graze literally 11 months out of the year on forage that just grows from the rainfall. Um, but they also have a different type of cattle and also a much poor quality forage. So they have to eat a lot more of it. And what of their meat that I saw was a lot leaner than our leanest cuts. Um, but they have a market for it. Um, but that was fantastic. They were so welcoming and talked to some great people there. And then the final uh, conference for last year was at Bitcoin Park in Nashville. So we were able to speak at the U.S. Cattlemen's National Convention on a panel, and then we did the uh, Beef Initiative Conference there at Bitcoin Park. What a fantastic facility that they have there, Rob and Matt and Josh at Bitcoin Park. Um, and then the college kids that come in from the local colleges and work in that space is, is phenomenal. I mean, because they're the up and comers, they're the kids that are going to be voting, you know, in our next elections. And those are the kids that we need to educate on the realities of what it is that we're dealing with, not necessarily what the liberal uh, education establishment is pitching. Um, 
And so it's it's been fantastic as far as the, the uh, conference circuit. We have over 150 producers that are on the Beef Initiative website. Wow. So you can search by state and find your local or your most local to you rancher. Um, and we don't discriminate. There are a lot of producers on there that clearly are not Webster's definition regenerative. Um, but we don't care. We want all of our farmers and ranchers to be able to keep as much of their income at their farm gate and not continue to make the multinational feedlots and packers more and more money. And so it's open to everybody that wants to, to list their, you know, shtick and their ranch and everything on there. Um, it's, and I love promoting them. I love talking about the people that, number one, were willing to list their ranch or farm on the website. You know, Slim calls himself the uh, hippie uh cowboy hippie punk cowboy or something like that you know he's got this long white hair out from under his black cowboy hat you know and his big rim glasses and talks a mile a minute um but he's just preaching a lot of truth you know and, and exposing a lot of the myths about big food big ag big pharma you know we were talking earlier about this fiat system and what happened is when we gave um the big multinational companies uh, lobbying rights, they therefore write the laws to benefit them. And that's across oh, yeah. the board. It's from the financial sphere, pharmaceutical sphere. I mean, when U.S. Sugar and uh, Cargill help write the um, food pyramid, you know, more grains, um, more sugar, sugar's okay, Meat is bad, fats, animal fats are bad. You you pretty much know that it's it's corrupt because the mm -hmm. way that my grandparents and great grandparents ate, they raised all their own vegetables. They may have made a loaf of bread or may have made a batch of tortillas. Everything was fried in lard or tallow. Um, they ate their own meat that they raised, whether it was goats, sheep, hogs cattle, uh, their own farm fresh eggs, and they lived to be in their 90s. And I mean, they both died of cancer. My, my grandfather Martinez died of kidney cancer. My grandmother Martinez survived breast cancer, bilateral mastectomy, lived another 10, 12 years, and then ended up with I don't remember what kind of cancer finally killed her. But anyway, she says, I want to be with your grandpa. I'm ready to go. Um, but both lived into their 90s. And mm -hmm. um, that goes to show if you eat like your grandparents and great grandparents and you worked like them, you get out and get some sun and get a good sweat on, there's a good chance you're going to live longer than if you eat cheetos and and your heart healthy brand muffin and your your you know vanilla latte or whatever it happens to be um but yeah i mean the beef, beef initiative has been great for for us it's helped me connect with more people it has helped me connect with people like you 
You know, I think this is like the 16th podcast that I've been on. I was on a spoke at the one of the lib, libertarian get-togethers in Denver last week, and then I was on a radio show. Um, you know, it, it's it's um, getting the word out there, not being afraid to speak up, and then also being able to and willing to to get as many people on the arc that we're building that are willing to put in their proof of work um, because it's super important. There's so many people that are so lost and so misguided by watching whatever's happening on the television. Um, and they're afraid to look for the truth themselves. And all we're doing is speaking our truths and you can either choose to come along or not, mm -hmm. but I'm going to help everybody that chooses to come along in whatever way that I can. Yeah. That's incredible, man. And you know, it's, we we have one of the things we've lost amongst many is a reverence appreciation and greater relationship of transfer of knowledge and wisdom from our elders basically in in the modern era and you know you, you're i totally agree with your point and there's there's so many other things of course what they ate right because they were even if it wasn't quote unquote healthy like we'd say today maybe there was more bread in there maybe there was more sugar whatever but it one it was those things you know from better versions of those things less like super refined whether they be oils or high corn syrup or whatever like they were eating more real food they were likely enjoying it in a less stressful manner likely with bigger families around more social as you said after like a, a day of work whether it be you know hard physical work or more uh, like morally or ethically or values principally aligned sort of work and you know my, my point is just that one health isn't that hard to achieve and as you said they lived into their 90s so they probably weren't stressed out about their medicare or medicaid you know whatever like your your farmer friend was and you know ironically your farmer friend in creating food in that manner kind of feeds into the necessity for being so obsessive about those things. But um, we just, it, my point is like, it's all kind of so easy, you know? And like, if you look at the constituents of, of what led them in their lives, like wherever they derived their value system from, many times it was religiously derived, but from wherever, like to what degree do you know what and why you're acting in a certain way and what's orienting you in your life? And then how do you go about expressing that and building that? And it, more or less, if you can do that and you're not being subject to all these toxins and horrible food and, you know, oppressive environments and environmental blah, blah, blah. Like if you can be left alone to do that thing, you're probably going to be healthy. You're probably going to be happy. You're probably going to, you know, be able to sit back at the end of the day and be satisfied with yourself and your surroundings and your family. And it's not that hard and all the better to the elder's point. If when you're doing that, you can intermittently sit down with your 80, 90 year old you know, grandparents and say, tell me more, tell me more. Like, what am I doing missing here? Where's my blind spot? Like, what, what have you learned in all of those years of living a, you know, life in that way that I might benefit from now I'm listening. And there's so little of that today because the grandparents are in a home or the, you know, the, the, the kids are away from family or they're, you know, they, they don't value the information or wisdom they might be able to get from their elders. Like punchline is everything is so you know, topsy-turvy and kind of messed up. And I just, isn't it so great that amongst other things, of course, nothing is ever kind of just one variable, that Bitcoin seems to be bringing a lot of these things back into, not only together, but also back into consciousness. So like, again, 
in 2014, when I first got interested in Bitcoin, I did not think this was ha would have an effect on how we produced our food. You know, I just thought apolitical money, great. You know, I think the world needs that. And as this progresses and evolves, we're finding that the things that make Bitcoin valuable, or let's say the, the, the principles and values that are somehow imbued in that are obviously applicable to most other areas of life. And perhaps they're helping to elevate them or make that more clear. And then once we can we can marry those things uh, and the sum the, the whole can be greater than even the sum of the parts, you know, like, and I, I see what you're doing in the beef initiative as like a, a great example of that, about how we get back to that point of integration with our natural world and our health and our neighbors and our community and, you know, our own relationship to ourselves in terms of how we deploy our own labor and energy and how we feel about doing that. Like all of that stuff is coming back into what seems to be a more truthful and virtuous integration. And what could be better than that? I mean, that's just a stunning uh, turnaround from where we are today in the world. So um, I don't got it. My last question for you is, you know, a lot, a lot of people I speak to are interested in, in actually pursuing a career in this or like, you know, getting out of their office job and going back to the land as it were, and, and getting involved in something like this, working with their, their hands, getting dirty, re, you know, contributing to the amelioration of the environment, producing good food, all that stuff. I know there's probably a million things you could say to these people, but is there anything that sticks out as a, you know, something that might guide them on their way, you know, as they, you know, explore embarking on something similar? Absolutely. So the first first thing I say is start small. Like if you have the opportunity to buy a small piece of land, let's say it's just an acre, start small. Smart, start with something that's easy to turn over, whether it's a vegetable garden and marketing vegetables, either through a CSA or selling eggs, you know, start small and scale up from there. If you want to go full gangbusters into cattle ranching, Get your finances in order that you can volunteer to work a full year on someone's farm as a complete volunteer, just learning how they do it and how they survive. Um, because that is invaluable. The education that you'll get in that is invaluable. And that's the thing for me is I was working, anytime anyone was working cattle, I was there to help them for free. Number one, to research their working facilities. Number two, to research their uh, cattle handling practices and also just their picking their brain for like, well, why is this that way? And why is this this way? And why do you do this? And why do you do that? But that way I could pick out the things that apply to what I was trying to do. Um, we're working on a, an internship program through the Beef Initiative where we're going to try and bring people onto the farm to do an intensive training. Um, we're still working through the legalities of our property because it's all in conservation easement. So we're in a, um, a negotiation with the land trust that actually holds the development rights to the property. Um, but we're hoping to roll that out this summer. And so that will be an opportunity for people um, to come in um, for an internship. And then we're also looking at maybe doing some uh, intensive paid classes for people who really want to get down everything from the finances, breed selection, breeding seasons, plan identification, 
uh, forage production, someone that's actually wanting to get all of that knowledge in essentially in a class. Um, so we're working on that as well. Wow. So it seems like there's going to be, uh, well, the, the, the available resources and options for people to get up to speed on this stuff is, is growing rapidly. And, you know, as a result of your work, the initiative, the beef initiatives, and I'm sure many others. So, uh, thank you for the time today, man. Thank you for the, the work you do. Uh, really appreciate you coming here and, and sharing your perspective and knowledge on things. And I wish you all the best and we'll have to catch up sometime in the future for an update on things. Thanks. And we still have slots available for our fall butcher date. So we're actually taking deposits for anybody in the state of Colorado that's looking to fill their freezer with some regeneratively raised Black Angus cattle. And they can reach out on our um, Rick Ranch's Google business page and send us an email and I can talk to them about options. Awesome. What's the website just for people that uh, want to check it Rick out? Ranch, it's our Rick Ranch's Google business page. So if you do Rick Ranch's search on Google, it'll come up on Google Maps and you'll be able to find us that way. Nice. Well, if I was in the area, I'd be all over that. So hopefully some others that are will, will do the same. Uh, Jason, thanks again for the time, man. And uh, I look forward to chatting again sometime in the future. Thank you so much. See you, brother.